Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Because it is a commitment. It's not it's not a moment. It's not a one shot deal. It's not a book. It's not a webinar. It's not a podcast. It's a real deep commitment. And you really need to be honest about it. Like, are you willing to make the commitment? Right. Um, and if you're willing to make the commitment, I think what that, that and that can be daunting. Sure. But it doesn't mean that you have to change your life upside down and become something different than who you are, right? So what's your next step? What is the next book or the next podcast? You're listening to Dr. Karen Suyamoto on Psychologists Off the Clock. four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. This is Diana here, and today's episode is really a culmination of uh, maybe a summer of looking really deeply into race and ethnicity on this podcast, and it appropriately culminates with the APA guidelines on race and ethnicity. And if you've been a listener along the way, maybe you've heard some of the folks that were major players in these guidelines. Today, we have the chair, Dr. Karen Suyamoto, who talks about how we as therapists can be more ethnoculturally and racially responsive. I found the episode really moving and powerful and left me with more questions and more inquiry and more work to do. How is it for you, Yao? I had a similar experience as a listener of the episode, and it really, it really did make me sort of wonder, like, what is the role of psychology and psychologists in promoting responsiveness and equity? And when you look through the APA guidelines, it really does provide a compass, a really useful compass for sort of thinking about how we can be a part of progressing in this area. The guidelines themselves are organized into four different areas. They're sort of the fundamental areas, which really aim to recognize the influence of race and ethnicity in society and for psychologists to take up the responsibility of viewing responsiveness to inequities as part of the lifelong journey and their professional responsibility. And then they also lay out goals in training and education. So if you're a psychologist that is in the educational sphere, there are specific goals. And then there's goals in the practice area, so sort of in the therapy room. 
and then also in research. And I, I just, it was sort of reflecting on that because I think psychology itself is such a broad field and we have such different rules within psychology. And so I think it's really useful that the guidelines really specify, like depending on what kind of a role you serve as a psychologist, there may be specific ways that you can act to promote responsiveness and equity. I think that Dr. Suyamoto gives such an um, important statement that race and ethnicity permeate everything. Everything. So if we think about just the field of psychology in itself, there's a lot of different roles that psychologists play. You know, you're a researcher, Yael, you're also a writer, communicator of psychology to the general public. You're also a therapist, right? So you're playing all these different roles. And in each of those roles, race and ethnicity show up and, and permeate what you're going to write about, who, you, who you're writing to, uh, and in your own worldview that's also been shaped by your training, as a psychologist. And I think back, Yael and I, so this is probably information we have, we don't share that often, but we should share it. <laughs> Elle and I went to graduate school together. And we, uh, so we had a lot of the same training. And I remember distinctly, this was over 10 years ago. So no bashing of CU Boulder. We love CU Boulder. It was an excellent training experience. It really was. And some really incredibly wise uh, mentors that we had there. And at the time, the multicultural psychology training that we what was offered was basically a, a course and i remember so much the experience in that course where we weren't given enough to then be able to leave and be culturally responsive i'm wondering for you when you reflect back on that time yeah what was it like for you and even just reading the the guidelines and how they've evolved now it, it's an interesting thing to look back. <laughs> it, it is so long ago, which makes me feel old. But I do think that at that time, it just wasn't a real central focus. It was sort of like you had to meet the criteria in order to get your degree. And I almost think that's how it was presented as like, you know, this is a part of your training, but wasn't really a core one. And so it's a real wake-up call, I think, for everybody in education, in research, and in practice to really start paying attention a little bit more to what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think in particular in clinical psychology, that was the case. But I, I took a different route in graduate school. So our training was very much a research-based training model. And then I went to a counseling center for my, uh, for my internship year. And Multicultural counseling was embedded in every aspect of my training there. At the helm was Christy Higgins, who we've had on the show, and she now is a lead in Black Safe Spaces. But the staff there was people with disabilities, people with diverse sexual orientation, people with diverse backgrounds, race, ethnicity, and many intersectional identities. And every single aspect of my work in the, in the counseling center was, was built around this, this model, this ethno-culturally responsive model. So I do think it was, yes, a difference in the times, but maybe a difference in the times in clinical psychology. And mm -hmm. clinical psychology is very much been driven by a white worldview. And in doing that, there's just a lot of that's been missed. And for me, it's really sad that that's been left out, or as we talk about in the episode, sort of this quote, nuisance variable, or sort of this side thing that we deal with. At the same time, I feel like this, this summer has really shifted things. The death of George Floyd, police violence and brutality has really pulled upon people's heartstrings and made something that is quite abstract, much more real 
And in a way that motivates compassion and motivates like a true desire to change things. Like I want to change things because my job as a psychologist is to one, not harm people, but really to help people. And unless I'm addressing this in, in sort of this psychologist activist way or addressing it in my own personal world, I'm participating in something that I don't want to participate in. Yeah. I think it's so great that you've shared your personal journey so much in, in a number of the episodes that you've done recently, Diana. And I just want to say it's been really inspirational. This is not my area of expertise. But I mean, I'm sort of just sitting back and saying, like, you take the lead, Psychology of Radical Healing Collective, like that powerhouse collective. I, um, I had so much anxiety mm-hmm. leading up to that interview, anxiety of, of that vulnerability of being seen as not knowing and mm-hmm. of stepping on a landmine and hurting someone or saying something that is, quote, wrong. And I actually think that that kind of expert mentality of psychologists, where we, we love to be experts, really prevents us from the possibility that we don't know everything. And there's a lot that I'm figuring out. The more I figure out, I don't know. The, realize, the more I realize, I don't know. And so yeah. that allows for just an opportunity to maybe start with listening and then doing the own kind of inner work of that's uncomfortable. And that was something that I was thinking about as I was listening to your episode. Dr. Suyamoto talks a lot about the value of sitting with our own discomfort. And for me, I guess the place that my mind goes to is what is the value? What is it in the service of? And I think what you just said is so powerful that as psychologists and from the field of psychology, our goal is really to help people flourish, to help communities flourish. And by being willing to sit with our lack of knowledge, with our mistakes, with our own discomfort and wondering about, you know, do we deserve to be in the position that we are in? Because that would mean that people who haven't been able to achieve because of oppression aren't, right? And by being willing to sit with those kind of uncomfortable internal experiences, it allows forward movement, it allows growth, it allows learning. Well, there's lots of ways to do it, right? So... So one way to do it is starting with your own life. You can do some inquiry, and that's one of the guidelines, right? So one of the guidelines is guideline 10, psychologists strive to engage in reflective practice by exploring how the worldviews and positionalities may affect the quality and range of psychological services they provide. So that could just be a start. And as, as Dr. Suyamoto shared, these are guidelines that are for us to kind of keep on going back to for a lifetime and not to be in a place of self-recrimination about it, but really more of like curiosity. And I think that as ACT therapists, we have that, um, that key, right? The key of willingness, curiosity, acceptance to discomfort in the service of something that we care about. And that's what true committed action is. And I think it's really important to mention all of the folks that were involved in the APA guidelines on race and ethnicity. Dr. Karen Suyamoto, who is the chair, the co-chair, Dr. Joseph Trimbley, Dr. Kevin Coakley, Dr. Helen Neville, Dr. Sandra Matar, and Dr. Suzette Spate. Thank you for all your work in creating these, these great guidelines. And in addition, just a personal thank you to Dr. Helen Neville and the Radical Healing Collective for coming on our podcast and also Dr. Sandra Matar. We've been lucky to have both of those, well, that group of individuals and Dr. Sandra Matar's episode on immigrant mental health that was just so impactful. It's really stuck with me. So we, we recommend that listeners go back and check those out too. Karen Suyamoto has a joint appointment with the Psychology Department and the Asian American Studies Program and Critical Ethnic and Community Studies Program at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. 
Their research interests focus generally on Asian American psychology and issues related to social justice and anti-racist therapy, practice, and education. Their research addresses fostering awareness and advocacy for social justice through examining relations of race and racism to mental health, investigating effects of resistance and coping with racism, and exploring the complexity of relative and ascribed power in intersectional discrimination. Professor Suyamoto was the chair of the recently released Guidelines for Race and Ethnicity for the American Psychological Association. They served as the past president of the Asian American Psychological Association and as the AAPA delegate to the American Psychological Association Council of Representatives. In 2013, they was recognized as a White House champion of change, Asian American Pacific Islander woman leader, and also awarded the Asian American Psychological Association's Distinguished Contributions Award. Welcome, Dr. Karen Suyamoto. I'm so happy to be here, and thank you so much for asking me to be here. Um, Wonderful. I'm very excited about our conversation. So. Well, we're grateful to have you on because I imagine that you've been very busy these last couple of months. And mm-hmm. for many Americans, the summer of 2020 has been quite a, a wake-up call, especially in the areas of race and social justice. And I imagine for you as an expert in these areas, that's been um, quite demanding on you professionally as well as personally. So I wonder if we can just start with, with that of, of how you're doing in the, in the professional and personal world and how the last few months mm-hmm. have impacted you. Sure. Um, the last few months have been hard. You know, I think um, I imagine it that you would not, that every person of color that you would speak to, certainly every person of color that I know would answer, it's been hard, you know? And I think if, if there's also this overlay, every person you would speak to, you know, um, with the virus pandemic, you know, would say it's been hard. And so the two together just make it very difficult. It's um, It's been painful in a, a a wide range of ways. Um, it's been painful to kind of uh, see the the ways in which um, we are not coping well with the virus and the ways in which that that is then affecting um, all people of color um, uh, and and particularly um, Black and Latinx and Indigenous people. Uh, um, more than white people. There is an aspect of the the virus that is just stressful and we're not handling it well as a nation. And the ways in which we are not handling it well interacts and intersects with ways that um, racism has been embedded in our society for forever since this country was, was started. I actually personally was in Sweden until the middle of June on a Fulbright fellowship. And so it was also just very uh, disorienting in some ways to come back um, and to see how differently our culture is addressing it versus their culture is addressing it. So Mm, what was the difference? What did you notice? I mean, Sweden has universal health care and government paid time off and unemployment 
And so the things that are playing out in ways that are racialized here that then lead to things like people going to work because they can't put food on the table if they don't, or people not getting um, healthcare because they can't afford it aren't happening there in the same way. And so that is very striking in this moment. And, and the trust, the trust in caring for each other and in um, having guidelines that encourage us to care for each other um, was a really, is, continues to be a very striking difference. Um, I mean, not, not that Sweden is perfect. Partly I was looking at racism there too, but it, you know, it, it was very, a very striking difference. So, um, and the, you know, the murder of George Floyd is just incredibly painful and incredibly painful in the ways in which um, it's not new. Right. Um, and so it's also painful to kind of watch myself and watch us as a nation kind of become activated around something that has been present for so long, you know? Yeah. I've heard from some conversations that I've had with people of color, sort of a frustration about that, because I think for me as a white person, there's, Oh, I'm waking up to something. And what I'm understanding or, or learning more is that that's n- definitely not the experience um, for many. And, and so it's both exciting that there's a lot of change, the right. potential change that's happening, but also I imagine frustrating. This has been an area of research for you and a passion for you for a lifetime. And yes. I read the APA guidelines this summer and they were developed in 2019. And why, why didn't I read them in 2019? And then also, thank goodness I'm reading them now. So it's both. Yeah. So there's definitely a moment of hope, right? Like, yay, you're reading them and people are paying attention. Yeah. And I want other people <laughs> to read them and yes. man, I'd have a lot to learn in them. So I'm hoping that today this can be um, an opportunity to, to also share about this work that you've been doing uh, with others. We've had two other members of the task force, Dr. Sandra Matar and Dr. Helen Neville on the show, talking about some of their areas of specialty. And, and you as being the chair of the APA guidelines, it really feels like a sort of an opportunity for us to, to really focus and home in on, on them and how they can help us as psychologists and mental health professionals to be part of what you're describing as a community for to support healing. So one place I, I was hoping that we could start with the guidelines is some definitions, because one psychologists love definitions. We love to create constructs yeah. and define them, but it also helps us get, all, get on the same page in terms of what we're talking yeah. about. And the guidelines are about race and ethnicity. And I think for some people, just even defining what is race, what is ethnicity, and what does it mean to be ethnoculturally and racially responsive as a therapist? Okay. So we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about this and the complexity of it. And so I think I want to start out by saying anything I say now is going to be really oversimplified. (laughs) But race and ethnicity are often put together like race and ethnicity, as opposed to race and ethnicity. And that's partly because race and ethnicity are, are lived in ways that interact. But race is really a social construction that assigns people to different categories of privilege or oppression based on their skin color. 
or physical appearance. Um, and that may be um, their own uh, assignment, but it's also assignment of others. So it's not just identity. So um, you may identify, for example, uh, you don't, but you might identify as uh, as black, right? Um, but you would have different experiences than somebody who is darker than you, right? And so there is this intersection of identity and and categorization and history um, that shapes your experience. It's not just what you choose to identify as, right? Um, race as a social construction was really created for the purpose of justifying oppression. Um, and, and this is something people I think really often struggle with is this idea that race isn't real. Um, so I think one of the ways, one of the best ways to think about race is not as a thing, but as a worldview. So Audrey Smedley talks about this. Adrian Bryan Smedley talk about this that race that we are racialized, we become socialized into a worldview where we see race and we think it matters, um, and we associate a whole bunch of aspects to what race or race category or an appearance means, right? And make a whole bunch of assumptions about characteristics and about the essential nature of those characteristics that then say because you are X, because you are, because I am Asian American, um, I must be this, that, I must have these experiences, I must be smart, I must be um, foreign, um, I must be a, a whole bunch of, of things that I may or may not be, right? Um, and if you look at the history of race, and particularly some of the early writings on um, miscegenation, or racial mixing in uh, relationships and children, um, you can see how race really is something that is created to say, these are the good people and these are the not good people, or these are the deserving people and these are the not deserving people. So ethnicity, on the other hand, is is actually much more about, about cultural practices, traditions, um, language. Um, it's about how, um, it's about culture. So ethnicity is, that's why we use the word ethnocultural. Um, ethnicity is a particular kind of culture that is about um, values and norms and behaviors and um, that are shared by a group of people that's usually related to um, growing, growing up or usually related to a ge geographical area. So um, to creating a culture because you live close to each other and you um, share and change and grow together, um, like over centuries, not like days or years. And I think for, for many people, even those two definitions may be, just even starting there at the definition may be quite eye-opening, especially with the concept of race that you're talking about as that being something that's been imposed. And Ibram X. Kendi talks a lot about this in his book of yeah. how to be an anti-racist. He goes through biological racism, he goes through gender yeah. racism and intersectionality. And that I think is, um, it's important in, in, in these guidelines that are carried throughout because the very first one is psychologists strive to recognize and engage the influence of race and ethnicity in all aspects of professional activities as an ongoing process. And I'm wondering if we can un 
unpack that a little bit. And maybe even before we unpack it, start with some of the history of psychology and how it hasn't done that. You know, so ethnicity and, and race are often lived together, right? Because ethnicity becomes racialized, right? So, um, you know, I, I, eat, I grew up eating rice more than eating potatoes, right? Um, and that's part of my ethnic practices of food, right? Um, but people assume that I eat rice because of how I look. That's, that's basically racializing ethnicity. Mm. So the first guideline that is about recognizing and engaging the influence of race and ethnicity is really saying race and ethnicity permeate everything. Everything. So everything that we do is cultured, right? So starting with ethnicity, everything that we do is cultured. The, the ways that you and I are making eye contact are cultured. The ways that we, the language that we're using is, is cultured. The things we value in academia or the, the things we think of as real, real knowledge are cultured. The things we, we think of, the kinds of contributions that people make are, are cultured. So culture permeates everything. And, and in our, our culture, in the U.S. culture, and, in, and not only the U.S. culture, but I'm going to talk about the U.S. culture for now, race and racialization is part of our culture. So, and race permeates everything. So every, every, it's not like you, it's there or it's not there because it is so embedded in our understanding of the world, our understanding of ourselves. It's everywhere. It affects all of our interactions and it affects all of our self-concepts and it affects all of our psychological development. Um, and it affects all of the ways that we develop in healthy ways or not healthy ways. It affects the ways in which we assess what is healthy, right? Um, and some of that is about cultural norms and that type of thing. And some of that is about who is seen as healthy and under what circumstances, right? What kinds of experiences are seen as healthy in what kinds of populations? If we, if we, if we think, for example, about slavery, it would not be seen as normal and healthy for a white person um, to be treated the way uh, a black slave was, right? To be enslaved at all, you know, to be beaten, to be owned, right? That would not be acceptable to treat a white person that way, right? And so it would not be seen as healthy for the person and it would not be seen as healthy for the, for the person perpetrating those injustices. And fast forward to the, to the current environment, similar things are happening in the here and now. Up until now, who has been making psychology or who are the, quote, leaders of, of psychology and how that is shaped by their ethnicity and race and some of the problems associated right. with that? Yes. Um, I mean, in the history of psychology, of course, the decisions are, and what is psychology, what is not psychology, what is healthy? Yeah has been made primarily by white men, right? And, and just to be clear, there's nothing inherently wrong with white men, um, but it, it has been made by white men from a white male perspective without awareness of what that perspective is or about race or about how 
their own race is shaping their viewpoint. And without opening to any other viewpoint or any other voice. Right. And so I, I say that because I think sometimes people think that when we say we need to recognize that race and ethnicity affect all aspects of psychology, that we're saying only pay attention to these people. And we're not saying that. We're saying pay attention to the way in race, race and ethnicity have shaped everything that we do and all of the ways that we interact as psychologists, whether you're white or whether you're a person of color. And it has shaped the ways in which we foster health or don't foster health and healing um, from all of those places, right? And so kind of going back to the example of, of slavery, it, it wasn't healthy for the slave owner either, right? right? You know, so the ways in which we are all caught, you know, people of color are caught in this net of racism and oppressed and damaged by that. And white people are caught too. And they are, are damaged and constrained, certainly not in the same way and certainly not with the same impact, right? Um, but you have to do a lot of mental gymnastics that as psychologists, we really should know are unhealthy to address the cognitive dissonance and not see what is so obvious in front of you. You have to work at it. It's just we're socialized so well at working at it that we don't even recognize that we're working at it anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And so if you, you say, if you look at the research on child development and race, you know, children learn to stop talking about race as they learn to become racist, right? So what does that mean that we are teaching them to to attend to it in a way that shows up behaviorally, like in segregation, like they stop playing with kids of different races, right? Um, At the same time as we are teaching them to not even recognize it or talk about it. And that the colorblind approach with children is is the colorblind approach that has can seep into psychology. There is a a word that you used in the um, APA guidelines, which is when race or ethnicity or culture gets acknowledged in psychology, it can be considered a nuisance variable. Yes, or a control. Uh, yeah, or a control. It's sort of like, oh, we have to deal with that, as opposed to wow, there, there's a whole richness that we're missing out on and, and opportunities to, to learn from and grow the field of psychology in right. important ways. Yeah. I mean, if we treat it as a nuisance variable, it, so this was, I think, in one of the research guidelines that we were talking about, um, you can't just do a comparative study. You can't just say, you know, Asian Americans are this way compared to whites, Right. Um, because that's really not telling you anything about how race and ethnicity are actually affecting the experience, right? So, okay, so there's a difference. So, so what? What does that mean? How do you unpack that? How are you going to use that to address health or healing or promote health or healing, right? Um, And often it is set up as, well, say Asian Americans are more 
this would be the statement. Asian Americans um, are, are less emotionally expressive. Mm-hmm. I, I learned that. That's okay. what my training was. I'm not missing yep. words there. Yeah. So let's unpack that. Less emotionally expressive than whom? That's, I mean, let's start with less means more. Okay. So who's more? Like, it's, you know, just the fact that it's not named. Okay. And then what does that mean in what context? In an Asian context, being emotionally expressive the way that white European Americans are could very well mean being rude and being um, unseemly and uh, being aggressive uh, and, and being selfish, right? Um, but if we don't unpack that meaning, then all we have is that this person is kind of, this Asian person is, a, is somehow less than or not what we expect, right? Um, and so we have to actually look at the, the real effect of, you know, this was a somewhat of a cultural example I just gave, but also of, you know, what does it mean to be oppressed? What does it mean to experience um, the marginalization and oppression that people of color experience in this country? You know, and what does it mean to experience the privilege and to never have to think about it when you're white? That showed up for me in the interview with um, the Psychology of Radical Healing Collective and the question that I asked, which was, how do you bring race into the in, in the city into the therapy room? Yeah. And Hector Adamas, Dr. Hector Adamas was like, bring it in. You don't need to bring it in. It's already there, my friend. And, and because I am white, if I'm sitting across from another white uh, individual, it's quote, not there. Right. Because I'm a fish swimming in a dominant culture. Right. If, you know, it's like a fish swimming in water. You don't realize that you're wet until you're out of the water. this second guideline, which is about encouraging psychologists to maintain updated knowledge of the scholarship pertaining to race and ethnicity. There's a discussion in these guidelines about knowledge in the academic world, but also doing some of the the personal work, the personal inquiry. And what what you encourage in these guidelines is very different than like watch a webinar. (laughs) It's it's engage engage in a deeper way about about that inquiry. Can you speak a bit to that? You know, the second guideline is a guideline about, I mean, all of these guidelines are about ethics, mm-hmm. right? Because if we think about it, ethics of first do no harm, if you don't understand the ways in which race and ethnicity are affecting your interactions and your interactions with your clients, you're going to do harm. And so this, people will say like, oh, updated knowledge. I never had this. I never, you know, how can I get this? Blah, 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 right? Um, and I, I, I will say, I never had this. I was never trained in this. My training had one class session, not a course, but one class session on this material. Um, you know, psychologists are smart. We learn things all the time and we choose what to learn, right? So we choose whether to learn this or not to learn it. And that itself is part of the system. And so part of the second guideline is really saying, look, we have an obligation to learn it if we want to be a, you know, um, a professional, an ethical um, and, and responsive professional. We need to learn this. And there is a, a piece about it that is also about, that isn't just attending a webinar or getting a, 
or reading a book. And this relates to two other aspects that we really ground the, the guidelines in, which are positionality and cultural humility. Okay. And um, cultural humility is really talking about this is a lifelong journey. This isn't one piece of knowledge. This is a continual knowing, learning, exploring, reflecting process. When you ask me, for example, about what this summer has been like for me, you know, I would also say this summer has been a summer of learning for me, you know, of deepening the learning, of deepening knowledge that I had, of deepening perspectives, particularly for Black Americans, that I had in an abstract, you know. Um, and as you said, you know, there are a lot of white people who are opening, you know, like, like awakening, yes. right, um, relatively newly, right? So, you know, I have been teaching and working on this in this area for 25 years now, and there are still things that I learned and still ways that I was moved and still blind spots that I needed to address and still things I needed to root out that were pointed out to me this summer, right? And so cultural humility is about recognizing that that lifelong journey needs to unfold. And it's also about recognizing that the idea that, that your thought that you know, you need to check that thought. You need to say, okay, well, let me listen. What do I know? How do I know it, right? From what perspective do I know it? And what is it that other people know that I don't, that I don't even know I don't know, right? <laughs> right? Okay. Um, so part of this is positionality, which is, um, really paying attention to the ways in which it's not just about identities. It's not just about um, kind of differences, that it's about power and privilege and oppression. And so positionality is about saying, how do I fit into these systems? For example, of race and ethnicity, but we could be talking about gender. We could be talking about um, sexuality. Um, or social class or disability or any of like the major um, socio-systemic oppressive hierarchies, okay? So how do I fit into this? Not only like as an identity, but how do I fit into it in relationship to the actual experience of power and privilege and oppression within a systemic view, okay? Mm -hmm. So as an Asian American, for example, I am a person of color, right? Um, as a multiracial Asian American, um, I am a more privileged Asian American in some ways than many Asian Americans within white contexts. I'm definitely more privileged. White people tend to be more comfortable with me than other Asian Americans, right? As an Asian American, we are more privileged um, in a race hierarchy than Black African Americans are. But then you have to unpack what that positionality really means. Because the privilege that I have as an Asian American is given to me, quote unquote, unquote given to me, ascribed to me, or proxy. Uh, I think it was Sam Juan, or maybe it was Will Liu, who said proxy privilege. In other words, it's not privilege that I, I call it ascribed privilege. It is privilege that is given to me as an Asian American by, by white people. And it's given to me as an Asian American by white people in order to maintain white supremacy. So if I'm invited to say, collude and participate in the model minority, like you're the model minority, right? 
Like that whole construction is a construction that is against black people. It was a, it was construction to say, be like, be modeled, right? How come you people can't be like those people, mm-hmm. right? And so the positionality, like understanding my positionality is understanding both the privilege that I have as an Asian American, the ways in which that is, is ascribed within a system of white supremacy so that if I try to access that privilege in a particular way, I'm colluding in the oppression of black people. And I'm also colluding in my own oppression, right? Um, because that whole construction is put up in a particular way to keep us Asian Americans in this case um, down as well. And so positionality is really saying, hey, you need to pay attention not only to your identities and to differences and to like cultural norms and and those kinds of things, but to oppression and to privilege and to what you get that other people don't get because we're caught in this system. So there's two parts of that that I'm hearing. The first part is awareness of positionality, awareness of being in a place of privilege. And that can kind of feel like I remember when I was really trying to have a baby for a long time, all I saw everywhere were kids. I'm like, there's kids, they're everywhere. All I can see is kids. And I hadn't seen them before when I was like in graduate school. I didn't want to have children. I didn't see children. But as soon as I woke up to the fact that I, again, woke up, that I wanted kids, that's all I could see. I think there's, for, for speaking from conversations that I've had with other white colleagues or from the white um, psychologist perspective, I'm seeing it all over the place. Like, that's all I see is my privilege, you know, right. everywhere in the therapy room, outside of the therapy room and in, in my professional life and my parenting life. And so there's that first part, which mm-hmm. um, I think is important. And, and, but then I also hear a second part in that, which is then how do we not participate in it? Going back to the field of psychology, I think is, is really important. So how can I, as a, as a psychologist, start changing my actions and my behaviors so that I'm not participating in the privilege. And that for me, it comes all the way down to like things like the GRE, (laughs) how you get into psych, how you get into the, the, you know, the field in the first place. Um, So yeah. Can you, can you speak a little bit to that? Yes. Um, You know, my students, um, I teach a class on like our foundational class on race and culture. And my students uh, say it's like, um, it's like taking the, the pill in the matrix mm-hmm. where you, you know, you now see what you're caught in. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think the first thing is, is being willing to continue to see it. Like, you know, I, I don't know how many of your listeners have seen the matrix, but what people often forget about in the matrix is that, is that a part of the matrix was actually about the, you know, the betrayal in the matrix was the guy who wanted to go back in. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what Janet Helms would call reintegration, right? He wanted to stop seeing the reality, right? And so one step is to, is to resist the pull to stop seeing the reality, right? Because not like seeing it everywhere is really uncomfortable and it's really painful. And it, I think as psychologists makes us feel like our competence, like our ability to do our job well and our confidence in our that ability, um, we start to question that and that's really, really uncomfortable. Um, But then I think it's about continuing to see it everywhere and being able to tolerate seeing it everywhere because then you can start to say, okay, 
I can challenge that in a little bit because we're not going to turn it over tomorrow, right? We're not like, say we're not going to get rid of the GREs or change the whole GRE structure by saying, oh, the GREs are really biased. Yes, the GREs are really biased. Okay. Um, so let's start talking about that. And then maybe let's put a proposal out to, actually, there was a proposal on the council floor of APA maybe three or four years ago to recommend against using the GREs mm-hmm. because of the racial bias. Yeah. And that failed. It was discussed and revised and tweaked and changed and massaged. And it became a resolution that council got behind that, that admissions should be a holistic approach. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's a little step forward. Okay. And those of us who spoke about the GREs being biased now, um, uh, opens the door. Okay. And that opens the door. And now if you look into it, now there's like three or four pretty good database articles and high profile psychologists saying the GREs are biased and we should stop using them. Starting so, to have these conversations is the first part of it. And, and being willing to be uncomfortable Yeah, about having those conversations because, you know, standing up and like saying the GREs are biased and then having somebody say, well, but there's, you know, these are important and we've always done it this way. Or, or even having somebody say, well, is that really enough of a reason to, I mean, there's always going to be a pushback. So are you going to, what are you going to say? Are you going to say, oh, I'm making you uncomfortable now. I'm going to back down. Or maybe I took that GRE and I took right. that Kaplan class that helped me get that. And I had the money and I had right. the white family. And then I had the parent, right. you know, you start to kind of start to look at, wait a minute, maybe I'm standing here because of my right. privilege, which is part of the discomfort. And when the field of psychology yeah. is, has mostly white men at the helm, that's not always something that people want to take a look at. Yeah. And the answer is yes. Part of the reason you are standing here is because of your privilege. Yeah. And, and, and that's true for me too. Like, you know, when, when I teach about this material, one of the things that I talk with my students about is the ways in which I'm privileged and the ways in which that got me here, right? Because one of the things that we really need to address is this myth of meritocracy that those of us who achieve, achieve because we deserve to achieve. And the, the flip side of that, that is like not said explicitly, but really, really present in racism is those who are not achieving are not achieving because they don't deserve to achieve, right? Because they are inherently somehow inferior, which is the basis of of racism, right? right? And so I will talk to my students, for example, about social class privilege in my background. You know, the social class privilege I had when I was in college that meant that I I wasn't working to put food on my family's table. I wasn't um, addressing legacies of, of redlining that meant that, you know, our wealth was not building. I got to go to college and work part-time. Um, and that meant that I had time to do a research study that in more depth than I might have otherwise. And then to work with a professor who asked me to um, publish that and to publish it, which got me into grad school, right? And that doesn't mean that I didn't work really, really hard. Right. I worked really hard and I see 
students at UMass Boston all the time that work just as hard, but they have to do, but they're working at a bunch of other things that I didn't have to work at. Right. I use the analogy with my kids of it's, you're, you're trying just as hard to shoot the ball in the basket. You're just a lot closer to it. Yeah. <laughs> because you're, you know, because of these privileges. So it's not out of that. You're not having a lot of effort, but I, and then this is where I get all bogged down because my, my partner works in early childhood education. And then I we trace it all back to that and the tracking and the segregation in schools. And it's just, where do we even, you know, start, right? Because right. we talk about graduate school, but it, this, it's all built in this whole system. Part of, part of the field of psychology is to help people flourish to help people be mentally well and live well in their lives. And I think this is one of the reasons why the guidelines have a piece that is really what I would call activism, social activism, organizational activism. Okay. Um, I I don't think, I don't know that we called it activism, but you know, I would, I think the goal, (laughs) we can now, exactly. You know, um, it's really interesting. Like, if we were writing the guidelines now, what yeah. could we say that we like? Oh, you could even say it. Censored. <laughs> um, but but this this issue of like activism, um, I think, is really w- there is an activist or organizational structural level guideline in every area of the guidelines. There's one in the general guidelines. There's one in in teaching. There's one in research. There's one in practice. And that's very um, deliberate on our part because it, it is a systemic problem. I don't know where this metaphor came from. Um, for me, it came from G. Quach, who was a, a associate teacher, graduate student associate teacher with me. And he had this wonderful metaphor of like, um, we're living in a burning house. People of color are living in a burning house, okay? Um, and we're being burned. And what, what therapy does or what we often do is we, we work with people for, to help heal their burns. We give them salve, we treat the burns. And, and then sometimes we, we try very hard to like prevent the burns. So we give them asbestos jackets. We work on prevention. We address at-risk things, right? Um, but we, very, we are much less good or pay much less attention at putting the fire out, right? And so how can we change things so that the system itself is changing, which is kind of what the abolition movement is really talking about. How can we reimagine and revision something that is, you know, what the radical healing collective is like, that's what radical is, is really thinking about this level. And, and adding to that of what if we as therapists are also doing some of that burning, Yikes, right? Monica Williams talks about microaggressions and they certainly show up in the therapy room. I was listening to a um, talk given by Dan Rosen and he talks about how when microaggressions occur in the therapy room, they're often at a time when a client is talking about something that's most vulnerable to them. So yeah, it goes at all levels. I mean, if we bring it back into the therapy room, um, I mean, I'll be honest and, and tell you that I'm not personally a fan of microaggression as a language. And I'm partly not a fan because it, it, it just seems very, you know, it, 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 I mean, microaggressions are racism. Yeah, it minimizes it. And it, it, it kind of feels like it minimizes it. So, um, but, so I would use the language everyday racism. Yeah. 
right? Um, because I think what we do sometimes with our clients in the therapy room, I don't think it's a microaggression. I think it's a reenactment of racial trauma. Yeah. Right. And then, and that language, I think, basically then says, okay, so we are reenacting trauma on our clients, right? Yeah, we're doing the burning. So we're doing the burning. Absolutely. You know, and I think it, I think it looks like everything from like, do you think they meant it that way? Like a client is telling you about a racist experience. Do you think, you know, do you think that person meant it that way? And it's like, well, why is that important? Why is it important what they meant? Because regardless of what the perpetrator or the, the agent, um, we can talk about targets and agents, perpetrators make mm-hmm. people un, un, unhappy. Um, the agent of, of that comment is meaning the damage is done, right? And so there's a, so, you know, the, the sign that says, um, you know, this was from you two is Harvard. I think there was one that said something like, um, you know, you're, you, you look smart for a black girl or, or something like that. Something like really like, Ooh, right. That damage is done. Even if the person is like, or it's something that happened in my class. Somebody said um, that the professor said, Oh, you're so articulate. And they said it with that surprise. And the, mm-hmm. the student said that. And the, another student said, well, that was a compliment. You don't think they meant it that way. Like, what do you think they meant? Right. And so then there's this whole process of like how you experience it as a race, right? Um, and the same thing happens in, is, is, hap- is happening around Black Lives Matter and around police brutality, right? Well, the police are, you know, are trying so hard and they're, um, they are not really racist and they're risking their lives and, um, or they don't mean to be racist. And it may be true that they don't mean to be racist and it may be true that they felt threatened and it may be true that they are trying to do good, right? And it is still true that they are murdering black people, right? And so when a therapist says something like, well, do you think they meant it that way, right? What it gets associated with is all of these other kinds of things, which in, in the example I just gave, you know, would be all of the, the things that basically convey, well, this perspective doesn't matter. This violence doesn't matter. This death doesn't matter because they didn't mean it. And I think therapists can get also in the, I didn't know. Right. So sort of not taking responsibility for the ongoing learning and the doing the work, both personally and professionally, in the same way that if you had a physician that did surgery on you and really damaged you because they weren't up to <laughs> up to date on what the current practices are, we'd be saying this is negligence. This is negligence and harmful. And so there's a degree of, oh, I didn't know. So therefore, it's not my fault. And I I don't know. I'm really kind of grappling with that because part of my personal inquiry is going back. That was a moment where I could have done something differently. And, um, and I think it's important to, to recognize that we're not going to be perfect. I understand that, but we can strive. I mean, each of these guidelines has the word strive in it. So there's an element of, of striving for better. I mean, I I think that we need to think about I think the question is, how can we 
not get stuck in the guilt yeah. and the self-recrimination? How can we um, take responsibility for our actions um, without and recognize that we have been socialized into a, 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 a society and a worldview that it has encouraged us to not see it, not address it, and um, not act on it. And so we need to, I think, find a way to let go of that guilt and self-recrimination and understand that it is a system, which is why we need to change the system, and then take responsibility from that moment on, right? Which is why the awakening is so important, because you can't fix it if you don't see it. Right. And this is what, you know, learning is, this is what learning is, is it the lifelong, I think you write in here many times about the lifelong process, right? And you even talking about the, the expert of most experts who wrote the guidelines is saying she learned something this summer, right? So there's, there's no end point for this. For those that have tuned in that want to continue to deepen their work, what recommendations would you have? I guess the first recommendation I would have is to, to be honest with yourself about whether you're really committed to this work. Um, you know, whether you're willing to, as you say, Diana, whether you're willing to say, I see that I'm burning my clients or I see that I'm burning my students and I need to, that needs to change, right? Because it is a commitment. It's not, it's not a moment. It's not a one-night deal. It's not a book. It's not a webinar. It's not a podcast. It's a real deep commitment. And you really need to be honest about it. Like, are you willing to make the commitment? Right. Um, and if you're willing to make the commitment, I think what that, and that can be daunting, sure. But it doesn't mean that you have to change your life upside down and become something different than who you are. Right. So what's your next step? What is the next book or the next podcast, right? Or, you know, take a guideline, take one, take, take one of the general guidelines or whatever guideline, if you're a researcher, take a research guideline. If you're a clinician, take a clinician guideline. If you're an educator, take an education guideline. Read it, go and read some of the things that are cited. We were told we needed to reduce the number of citations that we had. And we said, no, we said, these guidelines are going to be used by people to point the way, to point the way to what they could be reading and what is out there and the people of color and scholarship, people of color scholarship that they haven't been looking at, right? And so we said, no, right? So take a guideline, take any guideline, <laughs> read it, unpack it, ask the questions like, well, what do they mean by this? And why is this, you know, why is this not best practices? And well, what would be best practices or, okay, so there's like three paragraphs on racial identity, but you know, there are hundreds of articles on racial identity, right? So, you know, take, a, take one guideline every month or even every two months and unpack it. Ask yourself, how is it gonna change your practice? How is it gonna change the way you do psychology? You know, so 17 guidelines, hmm. Do one every two months, that's what, 36 months, something like that, right? That's three years. You have three years of work there for you. Yeah. 
The problem is right. you'll get into one and that'll take you to three more. Three more is just in that one alone, right? It's like right. that's where it becomes this sort of unfolding, 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 unfolding. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't have to be a big thing, right? You know, I mean, it, it could just be something like every time you see a client asking yourself, how did race and ethnicity affect this client and their presenting problems? How did it, how did it come up? How did it show up in the room today? Mm-hmm. What what it is it that I didn't see, mm-hmm. right? Including white white time. therapists with white clients as well. The other thing I would say is if if your listener is a white person, um, and they're asking the question, "What can I do next?" I would say um, find some other white people who are going to commit to the journey with you, um, because uh, it's very hard to stay accountable in this work if you don't have other people journeying with you. And it is not a fair, it's not fair to ask people of color to be the people who sustain your growth as a white person. You know, I I think that's a conversation that this podcast is having around guests to have on the show to talk about these topics. And we need to talk about this, but who are we going to talk about it to? And are we leaning on people of color to talk about issues around race and racism and oppression. And then on the other hand, if we only talk to white (laughs) therapists, are we perpetuating the problem that we only talk to white therapists? I think a lot of people, a lot of white people particularly are struggling with this particular thing at this moment. Yeah. Right. How do I, how do I do it without asking other, you know, people of color to do it? Yeah. And I want to say two things about that. There is a difference between, uh, like social relationships, like in my social relationships, it really like, I shouldn't have to explain racism to m- my friends, right? It's not my job to educate my friends. Okay. It's not my job to educate generic white people as a person of color. Okay. Um, as a, as a psychologist of color, as an educator of color, as a researcher that re- researches racism and, and, and ethnocentrism, it's completely my job. Right, and if you don't ask me to to tell you about it, yeah. uh, then you're kind of like saying, well, you know, all of this expertise that you have, uh, I'm not going to acknowledge that. Yeah. Right, and, and so I think it's really important to make a distinction between you know what you're doing because somebody is a person of color, and what you're doing because somebody is an expert. Yeah. Right. You know, um, and sometimes you know to to recognize it, sometimes asking a person of color uh, isn't just about their, their academic expertise, but their lived expertise. And so that's when it gets a little dicey, right? Because it's like, am I asking them because they're a person of color? Right. And then it's all about process. And that's about, I mean, we're really good at psychologists at process, or hopefully we should be, right? And so it's not about whether you ask, it's about how you ask, Yeah. right? It's about whether you say, hey, um, I don't want to impose on you, uh, but I thought you might have a perspective on this. And y- you don't need to, because I know that there might be a, you know, more burden about this, but I also didn't want to not ask you. Like I have a colleague who's been asking me a lot about different things. And she kind of prefaces things by saying, I didn't want to not ask you, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but feel free to ignore this email. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I ignore it. <laughs> Right. Uh, because I, I, it, it, the burden is too high or it's painful to address it or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. 
Um, so I think that there is a piece of, um, of that expertise to it. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for addressing that. I think that's really helpful clarification. Oh, yeah. And I have one other thing. I would, this is the second yeah. thing. I'm like, I thought I wanted to say two things about this. Yeah. Um, and this is something that, that I've been writing about lately and that I think permeates the guidelines in some ways. Um, you know, we are, there is a system, of, a, an oppressive system of racism, you know, and of, and of sexism and of, you know, heterosexism. But in this case, we're talking about racism. Um, and there is also, and we're all caught in it, right? And there is also like a, a, a genuine real relationship that we want to have or that you want to have with your clients or that you and I want to have as fellow psychologists, okay? Um, and those two things exist side by side, right? And so you and I are interacting as a white woman and an Asian American woman in this conversation, right? And we're also interacting as, you know, as psychologists, as individuals, as I, I see the kids, the pictures of your kids in your background, you know, I assume they're your kids. <laughs> um, you know, you have a whole, a whole life, right? You know, and if I see you only as a white woman, I'm going to miss out on so many ways that you and I could interact, right? At the same time, every interaction we have is permeated by the fact that you are white and I am not. And so how do we hold those two things together always, right? And not have it be only one of them. Yeah. You know, and that's true with our clients. And that's true, you know, with our colleagues, it's true with our students. It's like, how do we hold that both that really complicated both and of the system and, and the authentic relationship with the individual? I am aware of our time and, uh, I think I just have one last last question for you. We, the Psychology of Radical Healing Collective talked about radical hope and some of their radical hope. And I'm curious for you, what is your radical hope right now for the field of psychology in particular? So a lot of my hope right now, and particularly in this moment, is the possibility of becoming more complex and less binary in our understanding of these issues. Um, and of, um, seeing the ways in which it's not about individual intention or not just about individual attention, but it's about a, a systemic institutional way of being and worldview. Um, seeing the ways in which um, we can hold that complicated both and that we could hold the centrality of anti-Black racism right now and racism writ large and not make it one or the other. That we can hold racism with heterosexism and sexism. So being willing to, to dig into those complexities because that's for me the, net, the step after awakening, right? And, and something that psychologists have a lot to say about um, if we're willing to go there. For the field of psychology, um, we understand and study things like emotion, like ways of learning, like resistance to learning, like um, relational challenges and 
uh, and personal needs that get in the way of, say, perspective taking. Um, we have so much that could be offered to addressing systemic racism. If we would kind of marry the knowledge of systemic racism, of oppression, and be willing to dig into that, really as psychologists, with this really rich understanding of how people think and understand why they act how they act. I mean, that would be incredibly powerful, right? You know, because like you see, you see um, activist movements and you see activists burn out and we could, we could help there. We could do something that would intervene there, right? And you see uh, a message that's trying to change people's minds about engaging, right? Um, and we, we could see how that could be more effective. We would have something to say about that. And hopefully we would have something to say about that before another person has to get murdered to get, before another black person has to be murdered to, to wake us up, right? Or before we have to create, create another detention center to wake us up, right? Maybe we could actually lead in this area as opposed to follow. Right. That's my radical hope, is that we could marry those things together. Um, and, and that's really why, for me, why I wanted to work on the guidelines. Because there was just this piece of me that was like, you know, I used the, the earlier um, race and ethnicity guidelines that was at that time called the multicultural guidelines, but it was really focused on race. I used it all the time. It was a touchstone. It was, it was the what I, I, I taught my students, this is what we need to be. We need to move forward to this, right? So I wanted to be a part of the, the, next, the next moving forward too, you know, so. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you for taking the time with the guidelines and your research and a contribution to the field of psychology. One last thing I really want to say, I've enjoyed this conversation and I really need to acknowledge Sandra Matar, Helen Neville, Kevin Coakley, Suzette Spate, and Joseph Trimble who co-chaired because the guidelines were all of us. I got the chance to talk with you about them, but it was all of us and they are amazing people and amazing scholars and it was truly a collaborative effort. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.